we might get started. I think yeah. uh, I'm, I'm sure um, a, a few people will float in as well as time goes on. Um, I should introduce you, I think, to everybody. This is uh, Dana Mills, um, who's local to Oxford, um, one of our own. Uh, Dana's a, a DPhil candidate uh, in political theory um, in this very building. Um, she works with Michael Frieden. Uh, she's got a BA and an MA in political science and psychology from uh, Tel Aviv University. I think as we're going to see her work kind of branches out over many different areas, some of which I think will be quite unfamiliar to people who tend to work in transitional justice. So for that reason alone, this is going to be, I think, a very interesting talk. Um, Dana's research, I guess, looks at the intersections between political theory, uh, dance, choreography, and, uh, and other areas in the arts. And her topic today is uh, between collectivism and individualism, reflections of Israeli-German relations in Israeli dance uh, between 1970 and the current period. Dana, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. It's um, a great opportunity for me. Um, I'll say a few things to, to introduce the subject, as I'm sure you're kind of you're thinking it's a bit weird, and you're probably right, so should give a bit of explanation. So, as Phil said, I have a master's in political theory and psychology, but I also was a professional dancer. And um, at some point of my master's, I kind of thought, how come nobody thinks about the connections between dance and politics? Because obviously, if we think that art can be political, dance is part of art, should be thought of as political. So I started looking. I, I, I wrote my master's thesis about um, dance in Israel, actually a period before, period I'm going to talk to you about. Um, and I looked for a book to use as the source, the theoretical source, in order to analyze a specific period. And then I realized that there was no such book. And I thought maybe somebody ought to write this book, and maybe that somebody <laughs> could be. So that's how I ended up here with the DFL I'm very much in love with. And um, this paper is actually not directly to do with the DFL, but the theoretical background and everything I'm doing here is quite related. So I'm happy to talk about that generally in the discussion. So the paper deals with. A, a certain period in Israeli history, and it looks at the specific dimension of Israeli history, which is the relationship between Israel and Germany. Now, obviously, in transitional justice, we can talk about 10,000 things to do with Israel and other things that are on its mind at the moment, but this is actually, as I'm going to talk throughout the talk, it might illuminate to you some things that are very much enmeshed in Israeli identity and very much to do with all these things you hear about all the time. So I decided to focus on this for this paper. Um, okay, I talked a little bit about my, my default. Why do I think about identity and politics and dance? Well, if we think about connections between art and politics, we can think about connections between, as I said, dance and politics. And we can think about how people can manifest their identity or construct their identity through participating in communal forms of activity such as dance. So this paper specifically, I look at various areas of um, intersections between dance and politics. This paper specifically looks at identity construction. Um, what I'm going to use is theoretical background for the paper. Um, my paper deals with a concept of discourses of citizenship, which tries to deconstruct the concept of citizenship and think about it as a, a, a dynamic between three discourses. The original uh, paper was by Roger Smith, and it's called The American Creed, in which he um, talks about dynamics in, in the states between three discourses of citizenship. The ethno-national, the republican, and the liberal, in which in every period we can see one discourse is more dominant and the others are sort of 
more undercurrent, but they're always there in this sort of a dynamic. Um, two, um, I would say competitive politics people, not even political theorists, um, in Israel wrote a book called Being Israeli, the Dynamics of Multiple Citizenship, which took this model and thought about the, the history of Israel through this model and looked at three discourses, again, in the Israeli context, which, of course, is very different from the American, but the dialectic is very much there. Um, so just to like have a general framework in your mind, when Israel was formed, it was very much out of the Republican ethos of con constructing a new nation and bringing people from all around the world to create this new state. Um, from the 70s, there's, there was a huge sort of financial change in the Israeli society that led towards a more liberal discourse of citizenship. Um, Ethno-cultural and ethno-national -na is something that is always there. That's basically the argument in this book, that uh, obviously a lot of the things that are going on in Israel at the moment are concealed other, under the sort of Republican or liberal, but they're actually trying to create an Israeli a Jewish majority rather than an Arab majority in Israel. Um, these two are very sort of, uh, I would say, far, far left. Peleb is actually the son of the, the person who formed the first communist party in Israel, so he is very well educated, as you might see. Um, and as we, we can talk about it later, although this paper, again, focuses on something else, but it, it is worth bearing in mind that this sort of ethno-national discourse is always, always very much there. By the way, Roger Smith argues that it's exactly the same in the States. You still have this sort of very strong Irish identity underneath it all, and that's basically when we talk about multiculturalism, that's one of the problems we have to deal with. Um, but that's the Israeli context. Um, in this paper, I will talk about three generations in Holocaust memory or Holocaust commemoration. The change will be from commemoration to memory at some point of the paper, as you might see. Um, the first generation after the founding of the Israeli state, there was quite a, a large majority of the citizens in Israel came directly from countries in which they experienced the Holocaust, either firsthand or had to escape. Um, it was a very central uh, founding moment in the history of Israel. Many people argue that Israel would not have been founded unless that would have happened and then this sort of international recognition that Jewish people should have a state of their own. And moreover, it provided a kind of mythic occasion that people talked about and sort of this very strong founding moment that brought people together and people could sort of relate to each other. Um, Israel is a very, very multicultural society, so you had people from, even in terms of Holocaust term, uh, people who survived the Holocaust, they came from an array of countries, couldn't speak the same language most of the time. So this was one, one event that very much brought them together. Um, but in the first decade, this event occupied a very much dialectical position in the Israeli society, because on the one hand, as I said, it's very central, it's the huge thing that made the state become what it is. On the other hand, it's a very big trauma for people who are still living with it. And my mother, my, my grandmother actually escaped from Germany before the war, but my mother grew up in this sort of period and she told me that she remembers going to, to her friend's houses and seeing people with numbers on their hands. And sort of, you're not allowed to ask what it is and where it comes from, and it's something that we're not talking about. So it was very much entrenched in, in the identity, but not spoken about in uh, popular discourse. In the first sort of decade, proper decade of Israel, there were two uh, constitutive events. The first was a debate over the repatriations from Germany. 
um, which was basically um, there was an effort to retrieve some of the, the, the um, property that the Germans had confiscated from Jewish people throughout the war. Um, but a lot of people resented that and thought it would be kind of getting money for people who died. And, and there was actually a huge demonstration and a huge argument whether we can talk to the Germans at all, whether they're people we want to, to discuss with. And bearing in mind such a large majority of the population still had this in sort of the very immediate memory, you can understand where this sort of very strong position comes from. The other event that I'm sure uh, you all heard about is the Eichmann trial. Now, um, towards the end of the paper, I will talk about Hannah Arendt in a completely different context, but um, I'm sure you're all familiar with her depiction of this trial, which was controversial. I think it became controversial later on after she wrote her, her book and her sort of report with New Yorker about it. Um, but this sort of very big event in which Israel as a state brought a, a war criminal and brought it to justice or, or not, whatever your view is, in Israel was a very sort of strong uh, moment. And people who lived in that era, everybody remembers listening to it over the radio. And it was something that everybody sort of took part in. So it was very much part of this sort of creating a strong nation and creating a sort of discourse of a nation in a way. So we're thinking about the Republican discourse of citizenship. Um, my first case study, as I'm going to talk to you about dance and not just like very sad events, hopefully. Um, the first case study is very interesting. It's commercial, yeah. Can we turn the lights? Yes, thank you. Great. Um, this was actually premiered in 1971, but started to, the work started earlier. And it was commissioned for the biggest Israeli dance company, Bacheva, which was formed out of a collaboration with Martha Graham and is still very active. And some of you might have heard about it. They perform all over the place. And Nohad Malkin, who's now the choreographer, is, is commissioned work to do in, um, with the New York City Ballet and people like that. So. Um, this work is interesting because the choreographer is not Israeli. He's John Pankow, who's a South African. And this is actually the first, first work I could find that deals with Holocaust in, in, in dance, at least. Um, I have just pictures of that because it's from 1971, so I'll show the pictures a little bit, and then I'll talk about it. The theme of this work is the construction of the Jewish identity in Israel. And the piece is formed out of different scenes that basically we come together one huge thing. It starts with people taking off their clothes and going towards their death. So the reference is very, very clear. Um, then there are different segments in which basically the dancers become different images in the history of the Jewish people. And ends in a sort of vague redemptive scene in which they all become sort of a strong power. And obviously the reference is very clear there. Um, the work uses spoken word, which for its time is quite archaic in the sense of very sort of powerful epic work. If you can imagine a poetry reading in a very sort of, I, I wish I had the score with me, but it wasn't, sadly wasn't recorded, um, sort of a dramatic old fashioned reading of poetry while the dancers sort of perform a very dramatic movement. Um, the movement was very referential, I should add, in the sense that when they were talking about we are the trees, they create the trees with their body, and when they talk about we are the ocean, they go and sort of become the water. 
the name, the title I should have said is Amiyama Miya, which means my people, the sea, my people, the forest. So there is this sort of dialectic between environment, our new, our newfound land, and the way we create a state out of it. Um, Rina Gluck, who was one of the dancers from Bachevels, actually still alive, um, talks about the focus of the work which is the rejuvenation of the Jewish people in Israel. We're not talking about trauma, we're not talking about what happened there, we're talking about how we became strong people in this space, small land of ours. Um, there, there is, half the work deals with suffering and torture and then half the work is redemptive. So there is this kind of very sharp division in the middle. Um, What does that mean in terms of choreography? There are a lot of sort of very strong associative influences. For instance, there's a huge pile, as you can see, a, a pile of bodies, when, which, again, when you think of the period and when you think of who came to see this work, is quite a powerful thing to do. Um, and making the dancers portray, basically, the people from whom the legitimacy for the founding of the Israeli state um, was retrieved. Um, the movement is very, very dramatic. It's something that I, I looked at quite a few pictures. I did a bit of archive work for this, and it's sort of movement that you wouldn't see nowadays in dance at all. It's kind of very sort of as you would see in ceremonies or something like that, and not everyday movement at all. The emphasis in terms of construction of stage is over the group rather than the individuals. So you see a mass of dancers on stage. You're not looking at particular faces and the interaction between them. Um, the choreographic term for that is unisono, which means all together. Um, a lot of use of unisono, much less solos and sort of individual uh, expression. So, and the last thing that I managed to, to take out of it is that we're not thinking of private individuals, we're not thinking about these people who were there and had to experience this horrible event, we're thinking about the everyman, the person who, thanks to whom we have this country. Um, there is very much the strip, stripping down of the individual, we're not thinking at all of self-expression, which is what, when, 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 you, when you talk about art and politics, you usually think of how people express themselves through art. Not at all, very much the collectivism is everywhere there. Um, so that is very much in line with the, the very strong Republican discourse at this period of time. Um, the other thing which might be said is thinking about grief and thinking about um, what, how people deal with their own grief because obviously this is still something very much burning for loads of people in some of the audience perhaps. Um, you basically give some of your grief towards the nation-building process. It's not something legitimate to sit at home and sort of think of all the horrible things you went through. Sort of forgo that and you forgo your suffering and you, you give it, and I think the construction of the work going from the suffering towards the redemption is very much uh, powerful here. You sort of give some of yourself towards the collective and you forgo your, your right to suffer. Um, so that's more or less the, the first generation. That's my case study. Now, second generation and how that influenced the Israeli society. Um, the second generation is an interesting case because basically these are people who were born in Israel. They were raised with people who had nothing to do with the Holocaust. So we're talking about now even more multicultural societies. We have much more people coming from, from Africa and from other areas of the world. 
Um, but people who were uh, raised by Holocaust survivors very much had trauma as part of their bringing. I'll talk about behavioral um, characteristics of that in a minute, but one very interesting study that is always quoted shows a very high degree of PTSD in the second generation of Holocaust survivors, which you, you would have thought, okay, if your parents went through something, how can you transfer PTSD? But it was found, and then it was discussed much, much more than, than this uh, single study. Um, and the behavioral ways in, through which this happened were, for instance, this just examples from public discourse and how people talked about that. Um, parents who forced the kids to eat all their dinner because you'd never know when the Germans will come and take away food, and hiding food inside home, inside your home. Um, if you had headlights, which is every person who has a child knows that every child has headlights, but then you basically shave your, your child's hair because in the camps, everybody who had headlights had their head shaven. So you have children who grow up in kind of a normal society, but at home they have all of these things going on. Um, the other thing which is interesting that is going on that, that there is a little bit of the unravelment of the secret because people grow up with this but they start asking questions because these people age a little bit and they have children of their own and this sort of thing. I have to think about what happened there. It's not just this huge monumental event. It's something that my mother or father experienced firsthand. So there is quite a lot of sort of opening up of these Pandora boxes and sort of thinking what exactly happened to people, not just to, to the people. Um, and that's what I'm try, I'll try to show you in, in art. And keep in mind the first work and see how it is, how different it is. Um, the second work I'm going to talk about is by Rami Be'er, who works with the Kibbutz Dance Company, which was actually formed by a Holocaust survivor called Yuli Tanon. And he took over after she was too old to choreograph for them. And uh, he created this work in 1994, it's called Aide Memoir. And um, he says, I, I looked at an interview with him, and he said, it's not a work about the Holocaust, it is a work uh, through associational, emotional, and philosophical references, deals with materials which refer to life and our current reality. In the background, the private, the collective, and the memory are always there. So we're not thinking about the event, we're not thinking about what happened, but we're thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about the individuals who have to live with this huge burden on their backs. Um, I'll show you a little clip because that we do have on tape, luckily. Um, maybe some things you have noticed. Um, there is a use of the contrast between unisonal bits, which are very much similar to the, the earlier work, but breaking them into individual solos. You saw this sort of very long line of people and then somebody breaking into an individual random movement. Um, so there's much more thought about the tension between the individual and the group, which sort of influences it. The movement language is much more casual. You saw people walking, doing everyday things. So we're thinking more about the everyday. We're not thinking about a monumental event. We're thinking about people who live there and sort of how that influenced them. Um, the movement sometimes is really annoyingly monotonous. I watched this sort of whole piece over and over again and kind of thought, it really gets to you, this monotonous uh, uh, pace. And it is, in a way, I think a reference to that sort of a very weird routine that these people lived in, because some people lived in the camps for years and years, and that was their routine. Um, so that sort of use of monotony to get to the audience is very much there. Um, the other thing that you might have noticed is this sort of little duet between a man and a woman, 
much more thinking about intimacy, about intergroup dynamics, about people who live there. Obviously, there were love stories, there were hates, there were groups who didn't get on with each other. It's not just the event against about people. It's not about the people. Um, and that is very much discussed through the, the, the work itself. Um, there is a shift between a uniformity and the stage design and individuality. So these very long carriages, which are referential to the trains. And there the, is the use of lighting for that as well. The, the lighting is very much square, which is supposed to depict the, the train um, carriages. Um, but on the other hand, you have individuals. You, have, you, you saw a girl in a green dress. You had a, a person in a red uh, ensemble. So you have people sort of break out of the collective and are different. So this interplay is very much the constitutive, I think, theme of the work. What does it tell us about the change in Israeli society? First of all, there's much more abstraction of movement language um, and thinking about every day and thinking about, again, people who lived with this every day as part of their practices. Because when your mother or father hide food from you, you kind of think about what these people's routines were like. So we're thinking much more of the private sphere and thinking about how this whole thing influenced the private sphere. Um, less use of spatial collectivist organizations. There's not so much. You saw the, the big sort of picture of the group standing together and creating this sort of mountain of people. We didn't see that in the, the later work. We're thinking about how people construct these groups. Um, and that's part is, as I said in the beginning, we're moving towards a liberal discourse. We're thinking about the individual. We're thinking about how this influences in individuals and not just groups. Um, and the other thing which I think is interesting is that, and I'll talk about it maybe towards the end more, there is more thinking not only of the cost of the whole event on the individual, but the actual sort of dynamics that was formed. So the people who were sort of alienated in the camps themselves, the people who tried to create a normal loving relationship and couldn't. It's not just the Germans, the Israelis, the Jewish people, and what happened between them. There's a lot of complexity in any group that is formed, and that's something that comes out of this piece quite a lot. Um, one application, I think, is thinking about what is evil, whereas in the first work, it's very clear what the bad guys are in the beginning, the, the people who make the Jewish people suffer, and then in the end, the strong Jewish people come out of it. I, I hope my cynicism is coming across. Um, trying to be as dramatic as I can. Um, so this is very much like that's the narrative of the work. That's what it tries to do to the audience. Um, whereas in the second work, we see much more of a sort of fuzzy line, fuzzy borderline, I think, because people, there, were, there was bullying in the camps. People suffered not just because of the sort of enormous event that happened, but just because of everyday sort of hardship. Um, so evil becomes a much more sort of micro event rather than a sort of huge thing. Um, the other thing which I think comes out of it is the costs of nation building. The people who were forced to repress these events because they had to sort of give their grief towards the collective. And more than that, their children suddenly say, why? Why did these people not get the chance to mourn? Why did these people not get the chance to think about what happened to them because they were supposed to be strong and brave and defend the country? In the 70s, obviously, Israel is much more open to international influences and people sort of think we should think about what this sort of nation-building process does to the individual. Of course, also the tensions with our neighbors. 
make this very much part of the discourse and thinking the fact that you have to go to the army, they have the fact that many people sort of gave their lives by then to the nation, people still looking at that very critically. As I said in the beginning, all these things are very much intertwined. Um, and the other interesting thing that you'll see even more in a minute is that there is no definite other, whereas in the first piece, we know the others are the Germans and we, the people, are the Israelis. And the second piece, as I said, th there's much more deconstruction of the group, of the Jewish people in itself. And we're thinking about the otherness inside the group and relationships that work or don't work out and dynamics inside the group. So, the, again, the, the boundaries are very much blurred. and We're looking at the individual and things aren't as clear as they were in the first decade third generation, which is basically my generation, um, historically. Um, what happens in the third generation? First of all, the one very interesting thing that started in the 90s, I actually remember it starting out, is alternative commemoration services. Um, every, every May there's a Holocaust commemoration day in Israel in which everything shuts down and there are commemoration services and uh, Holocaust survivors are brought to schools and tell their stories and so on and so forth. And what happened in the 90s is that people started alternative commemoration services in which they made fun, they, they, they told jokes, not sort of, not even dark humor, but just took the sort of very strong symbolism as might have been seen in, in the first piece and started deconstructing it in a very public act in one of the biggest theaters in Tel Aviv. So that's become something that is critically discussed. And so the people come and sing and do stand-up and things like that, which obviously, if you think back to the first decade I talked about, nobody would have imagined possible. The other thing that happens, uh, which is very much prominent now, is um, youth trips towards to, to see the concentration camps. So that's very much part of the public discourse in which you take the young ones to see what happened there. Um, but at the same time, it's as many things that are institutionalized become very sort of problematic, it is a very sort of problematic thing because you take 15-year-old kids, some of them have never been abroad, half of them are very excited about the prospect of flying and going to the duty-free, and then you take them to the concentration camps, they have no idea what's going on, obviously, as every normal 15-year-old would be. And you bring them back and you say, that's how we got our nation, so that's a very weird transition made in Israeli society. Um, what happens in dance? This is actually a, a, a funny thing. So I came across this work, which is, was actually premiered only about five or six months ago, so it's really, really new. And if any of you go to Berlin, it's, I think it's still performed there sometimes, so very much um, recommended. And this work is a collaboration between two dance companies. The first is Dede Dance, which is a contemporary Israeli dance company formed by two ex Bacheva dancers, so the first sort of group I talked about. But it's very much in the fringe of Israeli dance, it's not like the hardcore big company. And they collaborated with a German dance company called WEE, W-E-E, -E. and they created this work which is called Berlin Jaffa, back and forth, and I'll show you a little bit of it and talk about it. Um, what's interesting in this work, before I talk about my conclusions from it, first of all, I should say that it, maybe you saw in, in the piece itself, there's not much reference to anything Holocaust-related. It's just contemporary dance. If any of you are contemporary dance-goers, would look like any other work. And the other interesting thing is that unless you know the dances, you couldn't really recognize which ones are the German ones and which ones are the Israeli ones. So there's very much uh, an effort to create a group out of these two collectives. Um, 
the, the workers, as I said, a few works together, so I can't really talk about sort of which, what choreographic um, influences we can find there. But it is very much, as I said, in, in the language of contemporary dance, both here and in Berlin. And both Tel Aviv and Berlin are very vibrant centers of contemporary dance. So there is sort of trying to, an effort to create a dialogue between these two centers. But the interesting thing is that the work ends, I, I actually, I missed this work, I didn't see it live because it was premiered and performed in Israel when I was in Oxford and I couldn't be. But a lot of my dance friends went because like, I know actually some of the dancers and they tell me that the work ends by all the dancers turning their backs towards the audience and singing one of the most sort of, uh, sort of the songs that, it, that is sung in every commemoration service. So um, that's basically like the song of the Holocaust Memorial since the 50s basically, which if you're an Israeli is really, really forceful to you. It's something that in every year in school you hear being sung. Um, what, what does that help us in, in the discussion? I find it quite hard to put this sort of work and this discourse into one of these three citizenship discourses. It's obviously not Republican because people are not, no longer interested in construction of the state and are very much this strand of, of dance and this sort of type. People are very much critical of this whole process of nation building and the cost it has on Israel and other people. Um, it's not so much liberal because there is trying to there is an effort to create a dialogue between people and there is an effort to create a collective out of two collectives, which I think very much goes against the sort of liberal project of looking at the individual and helping him or her flourish. So what I did is I turned to a third um, theoretical source and that's thinking about agonism, but more than that agonistic cosmopolitics which is a term that I took out of Bonnie Honig's critique of Sela Ben Habib's and other cosmopolitanism. And I think it's quite useful because she talks about a shared space of appearance that enables maintaining conflict while creating stable political spaces. And she draws on the work of Hannah Arendt, and I'll read to you a quote that helps us think about that even more in a minute. So we are trying to create this sort of neutral space of discourse and also in other areas of Israeli identity. But we're trying to maintain the differences. We're trying to think about how people react differently. They're not sort of they're not immersing people into a huge collective, but we're not sort of trying to look at only people separately. Um, and there is a quote in the Human Condition, which I think is very helpful to think about that. When Alan writes, "Human plurality, the basic condition of both action and speech, has the twofold character of equality and distinction." If men were not equal, they could neither understand each other, and those who came before them would not plan for the future and foresee the needs of those who will come after them. If men were not distinct, each human being distinguished from any other who is, was, or, or will ever be, they would need neither speech nor action to make themselves understood. Signs and sounds to communicate immediate identical needs and wants would be enough. So we are trying to go beyond the sort of the very elementary a, a common grounds. We're trying to create a discourse that is beyond that. But it is also very much a discourse that is sensitive to difference and is very much trying to show individuality. You, sh you saw in these very small bits, we're, we're looking at individuals really, we're not just looking at a huge group, but we are thinking also about the group. So there is this sort of dialectical tension. So to conclude, we basically saw three different periods in Israeli history and how they the, the dynamics of citizenship discourse, or as I say, uh, towards the end, maybe a, a new dynamic that is entering, I don't know, 
be interesting to think about it more, um, have their influences on dance. And I think it is worthwhile to think that sometimes we can learn, learn a lot from looking at practices that we don't usually look at, such as this example. Just to say thank you, because I did quite a lot of archive work, and people are really lovely and helpful. And I got very useful comments from the head of history and theory department of the biggest design school, and Michael is always great. And Alma Frankfurt, who's my dance mentor and was a dancer in the chair, actually, and helped me a lot with the first one. Thank you very much. Great, thanks, Donna. <laughs> really great. Um, yeah, I guess a, a very different take on uh, issues that we've all been sort of thinking about and, and working on for quite a while. Um, and in some ways, I, I guess it, it sort of bookends the term in quite a, a useful way. If we go back to Natalie's presentation in week one, um, which was looking at, I guess, sort of memory politics in Australia and the sort of, again, a very kind of personal take on, on issues around Vietnam, mm. refugees and the like. So quite by accident, I think, actually, weeks one and week eight kind of complement each other very nicely. Um, yeah, so I'm just wondering if, if people have got um, questions, comments about uh, what David has presented.